Renu. Hello, Declan. Are you back from Europe? Yes, I am. I had a lovely little uh, winter trip to Europe. Um, <laughs> very little work involved, I'm glad to say. I was on, uh, a, on a trip with my 11-year-old, with little Finny. Uh, I did see uh, Finn playing football and you uh, supervising him. You yes. looked a little too relaxed, uh, yes. Declan. I uh, highly recommend a week in Barcelona in December. <laughs> uh, playing football with the kids was really good fun. Uh, but I did pop in and see um, our good mate, Alberto Breda. I saw that, uh, yes. Yeah, and had a, a had quick, a quick, quick chat with him. him. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll put that out mm. in the next few weeks. Fantastic. Yeah, but it's great. It was nice to, and then suddenly catapult back into summer in Melbourne last night. So yeah, it's a bit yeah. sticky and disgusting here. Well, we'll hopefully see them all again soon. Yeah. All the conferences have been pushed forward next year, so not long to wait now before ASCA, GU, EAU, all of those uh, big meetings kick off. What are you going to? What's your? I'll conference be at ASCA schedule? GU. ASCA it's, GU. Uh, it's it's one of my favourite GU meetings yeah. for the year. So um, that's that's first, and of, in my in your second hometown grounds, of yeah. San Francisco, which will be fantastic. So Renu did a fellowship in San Francisco, as as regular audience will know, and you always like going back. Always yeah. happy to go back, um, and then EAU will be will be yeah. a good one in yeah. Paris. I think so. It's great. Um, and today we're going to talk about one of our favourite topics as uh, surgeons, lymph node dissection in GU oncology. Such a controversial topic, isn't it? I mean, it's yeah. such a polarising thing, um, especially for prostate cancer. But, you know, I, I think the, the paper we're going to highlight today is sort of a, it's a great little Bible article to go to. You know, where, where do we stand with lymph node dissections in 2023? And in the other cancers, because we've done lymph node dissection and prostate cancer on this podcast a few times, and I'm sure we will do again. But yeah. what about these, you know, other common cancers? And what about the much less common cancers yeah, in GU oncology? Yeah. And that's what we're going to find out about today. What's the title of the paper? Contemporary Role of Lymph Node Dissection in GU Cancers. Where are we in 2023? Yeah, what a great title. And just been published in European Urology Oncology, one of our favourite journals. And it's great to welcome back a friend of the podcast, uh, Dr. Ashish Kamat from uh, the MD Anderson Cancer Centre in Houston. Ashish, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. It's always great always to fun to be you. with you guys. Uh, our studio is a little different this time, Ashish. When you last joined us, I think it was we were still uh, recording from our Peter Max studio. Yeah, but that was a few years ago. Ashish was, was one of our ago. first uh, guests on the podcast. Way, BCG way, way and ago. COVID was That's the right. was the last thing we talked COVID. about. Yeah. Oh, shudder! You know <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> <laughs> Can um, you guys believe it's 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 twenty twenty four and and uh, that was almost four years ago now, right? It's yeah. crazy, crazy times. But actually, you know, um, it's twenty twenty three, and I think given that we're talking about lymph node dissections and in particularly in urothelial cancer, we really should acknowledge uh, the passing of Professor Studer. Uh, who passed away um, just a little while ago, and he was a big giant in in GU oncology. And you know, I, I still remember some of the most uh, some of the beautiful anatomical work he did, defining the extent of lymph node dissections. And um, yeah, he'll be missed. Yeah, I'm sure um, you encountered uh, Dr. Studer in your travels, Ashish, or did you work with him at any stage? Um, uh, he. Got to be a close friend of mine, uh, a confidant. I would call him. We chat about all things, you know, urology and and life. And um, no, I never got to work with him, but I felt like he was always there when I needed him. He was just, just a great person, a great mentor, a great surgeon. We we actually operated overseas together, and ironically enough, he was doing an ileal conduit, and I was doing a neobladder. I'll never forget that. And I, wow. I was like, okay, I'm an, I feel like an imposter over here. Yeah. Why don't you come over to my room? And he's like, no, Ashish, you, you handle that. You show him how it's done. He was just that kind of guy, right? Just so humble and, and unassuming. 
and, and, and really quite a gifted uh, reconstructive urologist as well. So that's... Um, and he did yeah. used to travel the world quite a bit, actually, didn't he? Because lots of people, just like she said, have similar stories of um, when he used to come to Singapore and traveling the world, teaching people. And um, yeah, it was a big moment when he, when he passed away this month. Yeah. So yeah, condolences to the Studer family and all of you who worked with him. Definitely. Um, but Ashish is very well known to our audience, I'm sure, a GE oncology a surgeon at MD Anderson with a lot of expertise in um, urothelial cancer, I suppose, in particular. And you're the senior author on this really nice paper, Ashish, so congratulations on that. And I suppose it's European Urology Oncology, which is a, a great journal, but you are, are you an outgoing associate editor? Yes, no. So when European Urology Oncology started, um, there was a core group that came together. Jim Caddo, obviously, Albi Briganti, myself, Paul Nguyen. Um, I mean, essentially, Lawrence, um, the four of us came together and and um, it was our task to get it on PubMed and get it indexed and we succeeded. And now, of course, it's time for us to hand over the baton to young folks such as Renu, who's, who's <laughs> come on as associate editor. So, yes, this will be, I I think um, in a few months or at EAU, I'm going to officially um, hand the baton over to you guys. Oh, that's sad. But you know what? We should actually do a double on this article and uh, and actually feature it in the European Urology Oncology podcast, which is coming very soon. Coming soon, exactly. <laughs> and yeah, well, look, congratulations to you and that um, initial mob who put this journal on the map because when it uh, when it got its first impact factor, its its inaugural impact factor was whoa, shocked the world, and then boom, up again. So um, it's a really, really nice journal for those of us uh, focused on GU oncology and going from strength to strength. And yeah, Renew is joining the the new team of associate editors and new editor in chief uh, Morgan Rupre, who we've had on the podcast recently. So this is a classic sort of European Urology oncology paper i love the way it does these papers and look what we want to do over the next few minutes i suppose is um quickly walk through the different um uh, uh, conclusions that you might have drawn uh, with this and we should acknowledge your your lead author uh, dr myers amanda myers one of your fellows at md anderson who i think did a lot of work in putting it together oh amanda's great um everyone listening and, and you guys should definitely be on the lookout for her um, she is a fellow right now at MD Anderson, uh, working with me in the research year, but she did a lot of work in this. Uh, clearly, you can see from the author list, you know, there's the who's who and who's yeah. done the trials of uh, in their respective fields on this paper. But Amanda was able to get everybody to come together and, and just give you the snippets and the highlights that we put together in this review paper. And as you acknowledge, in European Neurology Oncology, we like to sort of put out these types of review articles that people can go to pick up and say, okay, this is the definitive answer to the question as of right now, right? And then you can just have that in, in two or three pages in your hand. And that's exactly what it does. I mean, um, Amanda and the whole team has laid this out so beautifully and it's succinct and it's to the point um, and it really makes it a very nice go-to resource. Should we get into it? What, yeah. what's, what do they go to first? Well, I mean, bladder is first. Yeah, All which right. is good because if we get started on prostate cancer, we may never get away <laughs> from that topic. So bladder is first um, and maybe she should give us the answer of, you know, should we perform a lymph node dissection and the extent of the node dissection we should perform in bladder cancer? So first off, Reno, uh, you shouldn't be surprised that bladder is first, right? Because I'm the senior author on this paper. Of course, bladder <laughs> would be first. In, in, in fact, if, if it were up to me, bladder would be the only thing we talk about in the whole paper. <laughs> uh, but... 
you know, if, before I sort of answer your question, I think one of the things that we wrestle with, and of course we couldn't put that on the paper because of word limitations, is where are we today when it comes to lymph node dissection and urethral cancers in general? And we'll talk about this obviously with the other disease states, but the issue is as surgeons and across all disciplines of oncology, we've always wanted to do more for our patients before recognizing that sometimes doing less is better for our patients. But in the past, it was frustrating because in bladder cancer, for example, there wasn't much available for a patient if they developed metastatic disease early in the lymph node basin immediately above what we had resected, right? And you always felt, oh my gosh, if I'd just gone a little bit higher and taken out that lymph node, maybe this patient would have survived. And we would go up to the common iliacs, we'd go up to the IMA. I mean, at one point, I was actually advocating going up all the way and doing a full RPLND in patients that were high risk. And I've done some of those on protocol here at MD Anderson. The short answer to your question, Renu, should we be doing a lymph node dissection in bladder cancer? Absolutely, yes. That answer hasn't changed. Um, the extent of lymph node dissection, I think, has been answered, again, not definitively if you look at the nuances of the clinical trials, but if we want to believe level one evidence and two trials have come out and shown that a meticulously performed standard lymph node dissection for bladder cancer should be the current standard in 2023. So I think those two questions have been answered. You absolutely need it for bladder cancer and the extent today um, in an unselected population should be a standard lymph node dissection. And remind us, how, how proximal is that up to common iliac? Yes. So, so that's a very good question, right? Because when you talk to trainees, especially, and even some some younger faculty, the nuances of an extended lymph node dissection in prostate cancer and a standard versus extended in bladder cancer, they get mixed up between the two. So when we talk about a standard lymph node dissection in bladder cancer, it includes everything below the crossing of the ureters. So the external iliacs, the internal iliacs, hypogastric, the deep obturator, all of that is a standard lymph node dissection. The part of the lymph node dissections that's not considered to be part of standard that's extended is the presacrals and going at the common iliacs above the order and anything higher, of course. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think the teaching um, of doing an extended lymph node dissection is so inbuilt into into people who've trained in bladder cancer. Yes. And, and Ashish, you're a high-volume cystectomist. You know, how hard is it for you to take all this evidence on board and stop yourself at a standard lymph node dissection? I mean, we spoke to Sia yeah. uh, when the SWOG 101 trial read out, um, and it, it was really hard because the teaching is that you, you get as many as you can. Yeah, so, you know, uh, Reno, this, the results of these trials surprised all of us that actually were part of the trial design and, and participated in this because we were sure that we would show you have to do an extended lymph node mm. dissection. Um, and if you look at the German study that actually had very similar results and you look at the number of lymph nodes that were harvested, you can clearly see that surgeons, even with a standard lymph node dissection, can get a high yield of lymph nodes and some are tempted to go a little bit above, right? So it, today it's hard for me to stop, but I have to get myself to stop and say, well, I was part of the study, the study was well-designed, well-performed, um, and the standard lymph node dissection is ideal for the patient, also because we don't want to do harm. And yeah. what some people sometimes forget is that in the SWOG study, the extended lymph node dissection patients had higher morbidity and also higher mortality. So clearly, in we can do harm to patients. So it's hard to stop but I do get myself to stop. 
but again, meticulous lymph node dissection. So we're not saying that a standard lymph node dissection means you're not meticulous, right? The median number of lymph nodes should at least in anyone series or their own series should be a bare minimum of 15. And you can clearly get that. So my standard lymph node dissections uh, nowadays, if you do a lymph node count, which I'm not saying should be the end all be all, is like 2540. So yeah, it's yeah. easy to stop when you know you're doing a meticulous dissection. It doesn't mean cutting corners. Yeah. Important messages. Well, it was because that SWOG 1011 study showed the death rate, you know, yeah. 13. You know, there's quite a penalty for patients if you go go higher. You yeah. know, the patients were dying from complications of surgery when they had exactly. extended node dissection. So, um, and by the way, on that, when is that paper coming out? That was the ASCO presentation, but... Uh, uh, are you allowed to tell us when we might see that paper in press? Uh, it's it's in various stages of uh, revision. Okay. Um, so we don't have a definite date yet, but um, it, the, the results should not be surprising. They'll just be an expansion of what was presented. Fantastic. No, no, no surprises in there. Right. So I think we can put bladder cancer to rest. Yeah. I'm satisfied with that. Yeah, what so. about upper tract urethelial? So upper tract urothelial is a kind of an orphan disease, right? And um, when you have a disease that's so closely linked to bladder cancer and doesn't have enough numbers of its own, we tend to extrapolate from bladder cancer. So looking at bladder cancer data, should a lymph node dissection be performed? Yes, because otherwise imaging is, is woefully inadequate to stage patients and pick up metastatic disease. And what should the extent be? The extent should essentially mirror the lymphatic drainage from the site. So for upper tract disease, that's in the renal pelvis, the regional lymph nodes there, the mid ureter, take out the retroperitoneal lymph nodes, and down by the distal ureter, focus more on the bladder-type drainage lymph nodes. Um, again, is that definitive? No. Um, can you get away by doing less? Probably. Um, but it's hard to stage upper tract. It's hard for us to even sometimes know if a patient's going to have invasive disease in the first place with the small little urethral biopsy. So you can use nomograms, and the nomograms sort of help you predict which patients might have non-organ confined disease, but they don't predict for lymph node metastases. So today with the limitations of our imaging, staging, etc., lymph node dissection, yes, extent, regional lymphatic drainage. I was surprised at the, the 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 yes to all I must say uh, in this because I don't I don't do upper tract anymore but my my sense is that lots of people do nephroureterectomies without even thinking about doing a lymph node dissection scans are all clear renal pelvis tumor uh, so do you would you agree that that is what a lot of people do don't do a lymph node dissection. Absolutely. I, I agree with you, Declan. A lot of people right don't do any lymph node dissection <laughs> at all. Um, we're not saying if you know someone has low-grade disease, and it's rare to do a nephro for low-grade disease, clearly you don't need to do a lymph node dissection there. But if you're going in and taking out someone's kidney, ureter, and you suspect the patient has invasive disease, the regional nodal basin is very much right in the vicinity. I'm not saying you should do it just for that. But nowadays with the advent, and again, now here we're in a data-free zone, right? This is just extrapolating from bladder. But with the availability of adjuvant uh, Nevo and adjuvant therapy and better ability to select which patients should get adjuvant therapy, I think it would be doing patients a disservice not to do a lymph node dissection. And that's what the review sort of suggested. But has the answer been put to rest? No. I mean, the question, and, and we certainly still need the uh, prospective studies, if and when they can be done with the limited numbers of patients that protract. Yeah, I think they're the challenges with upper tract, isn't it? A, you know, the quality of preoperative staging is, is really, you know, quite poor. 
Um, we, you know, it's difficult enough to locally stage the tumour, whether or not it's, it's invasive. Um, and the patient numbers are also small. And also a bit unlike pelvic cancer, I don't think the morbidity is quite as high um, uh, for an expert person working in the rich bird name. What do you think, Ashish? Is the, is the balance less concerning from a morbidity point of view? Uh, difficult question to answer, Declan. Um, as, as you know, right, you can, you can create a lot of issues in the retroperitoneum with an extended lymph node dissection as you would with, with testes cancer. But in testes cancer, our patients are younger and urothelial tend to be older. So I have seen some horrendous complications just from a lymph node dissection aspect as far as lymphocytes and bowel issues in the upper tract, uh, lymph node basin. So I wouldn't go quite as far to say that it's a benign operation. Um, but yes, in good hands, the morbidity is probably lower than an extended pelvic lymph node dissection. And I must say, one of the nice things about this paper, and we'll we'll put a link in the notes, is some of the beautiful uh, yeah, figures. Nice. Um, so uh, accompanying many of the, the sections in the paper, uh, the team have put in some very nice figures. So here's one showing, for example, yeah, renal pelvis tumors. Here's the suggested template, uh, mid-ureter, distal ureter, uh, etc. So yeah, very nice. Always nice Lovely. to see a pretty picture. <laughs> Uh, and those are our, all original pictures, by the way. So again, uh, tip of the hat to Amanda for putting those together. Fantastic. Very nice. We'll have to ask her. So is this a, a beautiful um, chat GPT or DALI type of thing? Or uh, is there some talented person uh, actually doing this? Cause, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, so she is talented. Yes. But but it's and and it is using uh, <laughs> computer aided imaging, but it's not uh, chat GPT. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Very nice. Uh, and then I guess, you know, along the lines of nephro-u, nephrectomy, kidney cancer. And I think the traditional teaching in kidney cancer has been the lymph node dissection doesn't really confer a survival advantage. So, you know, rarely do I see people doing doing one as part of a radical nephrectomy. What, what, what are your thoughts, Ashish? And, and that's that's what this review and, and uh, the expert consensus sort of showed. Now, again, I've, I've stopped doing kidney cancer work for the last 20 years, uh, so I don't do any of these myself anymore. But what our review showed and what the recommendation is, is if it's a organ-confined disease, don't do it. Mm. Don't go in and, and do any lymph node dissection. If it's non-organ-confined disease and there's palpable nodes or there's clearly visible nodes, even then the true predictive value is only 50%, right? So it's like if you're there and they're visible and you can remove them, by all means remove them. And that's where all the guidelines suggest. The guidelines also seem to suggest, and this is again based on expert opinion, not really based on prospective studies, is that if you have certain histologies that you think might be amenable to systemic therapy after better staging, such as sarcomatide and what have you, in that case, yes, maybe taking out the lymph nodes might cure a small fraction of the patients, and it might also give you the better ability to enroll these patients on future studies. So you're right, Renu. Uh, when it comes to kidney cancer, uh, the it's, it's a soft recommendation to do a lymph node dissection in the higher risk patients that have potential for non-confined disease, but it's not a win for the patient when it comes to survival. And clearly, you don't need to go rushing in and, and taking out all the lymph nodes, even if they're visible and palpable, because it's only a 50% yield, um, even if you think that they're definitely involved with cancer. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Often you do see these and you know slightly enlarged palpable lymph nodes at the time of nephrectomy and they end up being reactive nodes and um so that's that's good. So we we have an answer for kidney. We're up to prostate. 
I love it now, and we should note. Look, look at the co-authors on this paper. Oh, yeah. There's some <laughs> prostate lymph node um, fanaticists here on this paper. Uh, our good friends, uh, yeah, Briganti, Briganti, Tujir, some great with uh, Samir, uh, Taneja, uh, Brad Leibovich, etc., etc. Too uh, Marco Moschini. Great, two great team of people. Um, and uh, yeah, unsurprisingly, uh, there's a lot more data in this, I suppose, that, that to speak to. Um, and I was, um, uh, we've talked about this on the podcast quite a lot as well, but, you know, here's, here I'll give you our take in Australia, and you refer to this a little bit in the paper, is in the PSMA era when every single person's been getting a PSMA pet for almost 10 years now for prostate cancer. If the PET scan is negative, the vast majority of patients will not have a pelvic lymph node dissection, despite what guidelines have told us throughout that same period. Um, and I must say there was a very nice paper from Briganti's group in European Urology Oncology earlier this year from Gandaglia and co showing yes when you add in a, a negative PSMA PET into a normogram into a, a modified Briganti normogram yeah the negative predictive value is high especially for the intermediate risk cancers um, but nonetheless the guidelines will still recommend a pelvic lymph node dissection for lots of people I suppose. So here I'm going to take the prerogative of the guest in your house and flip it over, and I'm going to ask you the question, right? <laughs> because clearly you guys um, are the experts here in this field. So let me ask you two things. Number one, what's your sense about lymph node dissection versus none? Not extended versus limited, but lymph node dissection versus none. What's your take on that? I'll answer it by saying, I suppose, we've now begun to see the data on extended versus standard showing really no difference now, caveats on on the two main trials referred to. So the next question is obviously, well, what about no lymph node dissection versus some sort of lymph node dissection? Um, and to, you know, you've referred to the two big trials ongoing, the Memorial trial mm. and the Briganti at the um, Hamburg Martini Clinic trial ongoing. And so we will see data on it. Our strong sense is that it's going to show that in PSMA negative patients, which will be part of the, the German group, there's going to be no benefit from doing a lymph node dissection. That, that's my sense. And, and that's that's my strong suspicion as well, uh, Declan and Anu. Uh, you know, again, as as we talked about earlier, the whole lymph node dissection paradigm has has changed, and it's always a pendulum swing. Um, when I was a fellow at Anderson in in the early two thousands, um, Richard Babayan, who was one of the pioneers of of trying to you know tailor therapy and personalize it to patients, um, he had this beautiful paper and beautiful series where he would do unilateral lymph node dissection based on his nomogram predicting which side. And we all looked at him and said, okay, fine, like that's a little bit crazy. We should do lymph node dissections and everybody on either side. So that pendulum had started to swing at that point and then we started doing extendeds on everybody and now it's going back so i share your bias um and you know when it comes to prostate i'm, I'm talking to the two experts right now so thank you for sharing your your insights yeah and look uh, and I, you do have to remind yourself that there is no evidence that lymph node dissection improves survival or quality of life and has morbidity so even with that, even if you showed some sort of interim benefit, like for biochemical recurrence, you're still saying, well, it doesn't improve survival, probably largely because imaging is very good and salvage is very good uh, for node-only recurrences. But um, yeah, I think those those big trials, we look forward to renew the lymph node dissection versus none. I have to say, we couldn't even do those sorts of trials in Australia yeah. because there would be no equipoise um, when people are so used to doing PET imaging and people feeling generally comfortable with the idea of avoiding a lymph node dissection. And by people, I mean our very increasingly well-informed patients who will come to us and say i've read about this i don't want a lymph node dissection and um yeah etc cetera, etc cetera, so yeah i mean i think the last time we really were seriously doing it was for the lutectomy trial and even then yeah. informed patients decided against it that's right yeah exactly right so, 
Oh, we look forward to the data and I think it's a it's a nice brief summary there but we yeah. we already talk about prostate cancer too much too in this much. podcast so now we're going to go to the <laughs> the final few bits the rare cancers yes yeah, so the penile cancer Ashish I mean this is where the traditional teaching has always stamped the importance of doing a lymph node dissection but there's a lot of confusion with penile cancer I mean do we do a central node biopsy do we do inguinal node biopsy do we do unilateral bilateral if frozen section is positive do we then do a pelvic node dissection um, can you clear it all up for us I'm not sure I can clear it up, but I could try. Uh, you know, again, with the penile cancer lymph node, um, the traditional classic teaching, and, and you know, I, I went to medical school in India, and Tata Memorial, which is the largest cancer center in that part of the world and has seen more penile cancer than, you know, all the centers in the U.S. put together, always had this teaching that if you have inguinal nodes that are enlarged, do antibiotics for X number of weeks because a large percentage of those are actually infected inguinal nodes. Um, and that might be true in certain parts of the world where hygiene and other things may not be a luxury that many patients can can afford, right? But when you look at the more modern series, even in India and especially in, in North America, if you have lymph nodes that are palpable and visible and resectable, no question, you have to do an inguinal lymph node dissection and a deep pelvic lymph node dissection. So there, there is not any controversy other than just to caution people, don't do heroic surgery up front. We do have chemo and immunotherapy now that can be effective. But if it's resectable, it's visible, it's N-plus disease, inguinal, and deep pelvic lymph node dissections clearly have to be done, especially if there's two or more, and some people say three or more lymph nodes that are positive. The controversy comes in, or not the controversy, but the selection of patients comes in when you have a node-negative patient and you have penile cancer, what do you do? If you have the ability to do a central node biopsy at your center, and I say that because there are many centers, even in the U.S., that don't have this ability, um, but if you have the ability, do it, because the false negative rate of doing a dynamic central node biopsy is extremely small. It's in the single digits in, in most series. And if you, that's negative, then you can save your patient from having to do an inguinal lymph node dissection with the potential edema and other complications that arise from it. But if you don't have the ability to do a central node dissection, which is the majority of centers um, in the world, then in a patient that is at a higher risk of having node-positive disease, that is anything other than a very early stage TIS type of tumor, doing a inguinal lymph node dissection, whether it's saphenous sparing with fascial lattice sparing or saphenous sparing modified limited uh, dissection should be standard of care. And then using that frozen section and seeing the number of nodes that are positive and then extending it to a wider dissection and a pelvic lymph node dissection should be the route that people will follow. And I think that's work that has been done by penile cancer experts such as Phil Spies, Curtis Petaway, uh, the Tata group, you know, many, many people have, have essentially dedicated their life's work to this. And I think the guidelines are pretty clear nowadays on that. So there was not much controversy there. It was actually easier for us to just summarize and in some ways repeat what the guidelines already say. Very good. And even though you've made that comment that we have things like uh, immunotherapy and chemotherapy, it, it, they don't work that well, do they, for nasty penile cancer? So the surgery still remains our best option for these patients, and especially when you know they've got some regional disease. And uh, yeah, and again, nice images uh, from Amanda and yeah, team. Um, nice. uh, they show some very nice graphics of uh, a radical lymph uh, inguinal node dissection versus uh, a fascia sparing node dissection. Just a nice little reminder of the template. So, uh, nice job. Um, any other questions on penile cancer? No, I think that's crystal clear. 
What, oh, I suppose, um, Ash, I might ask you, what about um, robotic groin node dissection? I know that's not something you do yourself. Um, Nathan Laurentiuk in our centre has been doing that for the past couple of years, as we've seen others around the world uh, uh, developing it. Have you any thoughts on, on groin node dissection with the robot? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, we, we sort of do that as a standard of care here in patients that you suspect have limited nodal burden. Um, and also, it actually lends itself well to limited morbidity, even in patients where you think you might have to do a pelvic lymph node dissection, right? Because <clears throat> you can clearly still do that using the robot just with a different docking position. So unless there are large, messy lymph nodes where you suspect you're going to have to do a wide resection, skin graft, all that, that anyways, doing a little robotic uh, central node or doing the robotic iliac um, um, uh, inguinal node dissection and then going into the deep iliacs is clearly uh, the way to do it if you have the ability and the expertise to do that. So that's sort of what Curtis uh, Petaway does, all our penile cancer here does. Good. And, you know, testicular cancer, not rare. Um, you know, is there anything new in testicular cancer, Ashish? I mean, we know that, you know, RPLND is, is sort of a, especially non-seminoma, it can, it can primarily treat um, retroperitoneal disease. It can be used for uh, post-chemotherapy residual disease. Um, and even now for seminoma um, in certain cases. Is there anything new? Now, you, you summarized what we put in there uh, well. I mean, we again, it's a very limited paragraph because testes cancer, lymph node dissection is such a such an integral part of what we do for our testes cancer patients that there really is no controversy. Yeah. Um, the only thing new is recognizing that patients have different preferences and many might want to avoid even a single dose of chemo. They definitely might want to avoid radiation. And the more patients hear about that, the more they say, well, let me do, you know, let me have surgery. And clearly now with minimally invasive robotic uh, lymph node dissection for testes cancer, uh, the big incision, et cetera, is, is, is a thing of the past. So that's the only thing that's sort of new is that uh, it renewed recognition amongst patients that they may elect not to want to gamble with the toxicity of chemotherapy or, or radiation and opt for surgery instead. But otherwise, very, very much what's in the classic textbooks. And continues to be a special group of people because, you know, generally they're very young and, um, you know, and like as she said, you know, a lot of them do want to avoid the toxicities of, of certain systemic treatments. So the role of RPLND yeah. really important. That's definitely changed in the last 10 years where it was certainly accepted as standard of care, mm -hmm. having three or four cycles of BEP, etc. Um, but I definitely feel it in our GU medical oncology colleagues, uh, concerns about the toxicity because they're seeing these patients 10, 20, 30 years later with some you know late effects of, of, of chemotherapy that has been successful. Um, and therefore, if you can say, well, uh, if you can do higher quality surgery with lower morbidity, then you can certainly argue, can't you? So uh, we're definitely seeing that, I think, Ashish, which is, I suppose, just good multidisciplinary teams working together to kind of, you know, get best, best options for these younger patients. Yeah, and it was great because we had our multidisciplinary meeting today, Declan, and, uh, and one of our medical oncologists presented a patient who, you know, had uh, chemotherapy in 2018 and we've discharged him. Yeah. It's always happy news to, to hear that. It is. It is good. Um, Ashish, thanks very much. What a nice paper. I did enjoy that discussion. Lovely paper. And yeah, congratulations to Amanda for putting this all together and coordinating everyone. I think that's a, it's, it's going to be a go-to paper for, for many people. Thanks. Thanks for featuring it and, and having me. It's always a pleasure chatting with you guys. <laughs> great. Great to have a friend of the podcast back, uh, Dr. Ashish Kamat. And um, we look forward to seeing you uh, next year. EAU, I suppose. Will you be at EAU? 
Absolutely. Absolutely, he says. That's great. All right, that's all we have time for uh, Renew. Fantastic. That was was great. I learned a lot. And we will be back with one more episode uh, before Christmas. We're going to have a special Christmas episode, a wrap-up at the end of the year. Uh, and we have some goodies. we got some stuff to give away. Uh, we it's going to be good. Uh, yeah, so I'm tune not in. baking. Uh, Renew's not baking. Um, <laughs> um, but that is a good thing, though, when Renew bakes, by the way, when you're going through Melbourne. <laughs> but we have some goodies to give away. we got some big travel awards uh, to go to the APCCC. That's our sneak for next yeah, year. Yeah, that's going to be a good um, Christmas present. And we're going to talk about that next week. So for our regular listeners, uh, you'll enjoy that. See you next time. Bye.